Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other people who love the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. We're coming to you this week with an episode on the first reading for January 12, 2020, which is Isaiah 42, 1-9. And our guest expert this week is none other than Rachel Wren, my Ta-da! beloved co-host. <laughs> this is a this is another classic text, isn't it? They're like, I would say hammering us, but it's fun to have these. But yeah, they are definitely like the Isaiah text. If you think of the prophet Isaiah, these are the first ones that might come to mind for people who aren't super comfortable with the Bible or with the prophets. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, I'll, I'll let you add it. How do you want to get into this text? Well, the first thing I thought we might talk about is something like the theme of the passage. Um, This is an interesting text because it's broken up into a couple of different parts. Um, And there's there's a pretty defined break right away in the beginning. You have verses 1 to 4 that talk about something. And then verses 5 to 9 kind of take that something and flesh it out and show what that might look like. Do you want to know what the something is? <laughs> wait, wait, what's the something? Well, the something is is kind of the theme of this passage. Um, it's a Hebrew word, mishpat. Mishpat, if you remember your Hebrew, is spelled uh, mem, shin, pe, tet, mishpat. It's a noun. It's often translated justice. It shows up a ton in Isaiah, and it shows up in three verses of this passage. Verse 1 verse 3, and verse 4. So the first half of this passage, verses 1 to 4, is a description of the servant of God who will bring forth mishpat. And the second half, verses 5 to 9, are a description of what it looks like for this servant to live in or enact mishpat. So there's a lot to talk about in that because there's like who is the servant and and what even is mishpat. Yeah, what is mishpat? (laughs) Well, it's super hard to translate. As I mentioned before, it's often translated justice, uh, but there's other Hebrew words like tzedakah, which are also translated mm-hmm. justice. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's really helpful if you're looking for understanding a biblical word like that is to try to figure out what its range of meanings is. Um, Hebrew, as you know, Tim, has less words than English, so those words have to do double, triple, sometimes quadruple duty. Mm-hmm. Um so when you're talking about the kind of work that Mishpat is doing, there's a lot of a legal tinge to it, kind of different aspects of judgment. So there's the, the process of judgment uh, where a case or a cause is presented. So the word can just mean a, a legal case, which is being presented for judgment. Um, it can also be the decision of judgment itself, or even the enactment or execution of that judgment. But it doesn't just stop there. It's broader than that, too. It can be uh, an adjective or an attribute, something like righteousness um, or a righteous person, a just person. And then finally, it, it can also include just this sense of like properness of, of what is fitting of in Old English, what you, you might say, what is meat, M-E-T-E, what is meat, what is right. Hmm. Um, 
So that's that's sort of the the getting our arms around that word mishpat. And that's the thing that this beloved servant of Adonai is going to bring about in this text. The thing that Adonai is delighting in, is looking forward to, is almost hungry for. Um, so in a sermon, for short, you could translate mishpat as justice, but it's one of those words that really needs translation with like a phrase, a sentence, sometimes even a whole paragraph. And we have within that those first you know four verses or so, all of those illustrations of the, the way that sort of what mishpat looks like in this particular servant, mm-hmm. the sort of behaviors and attitudes and dispositions that yeah. um, might be illustrations of what mishpat's doing in this text. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That sort of surrounding imagery in the context can really be helpful in talking about what that looks like in this context. So here it's a person or a group of people perhaps that has had God's spirit, God's ruach put on them that shall be doing something with other nations. And it's not going to be a violent something. A lot of times the the direction or the the quality of action towards other people or towards other nations can be violent or at least tense in the in the Bible. But this one is is the opposite of that. It's a voice that shall not be heard, that shall not be cried out or shouted aloud. It's a a, a care for a so much care and gentleness that a bruised reed or a dim wick will not be broken or snuffed out. Um, something about these qualities start to help us define what mishpat is in this text. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot about mishpat and it, that's sort of the broad definition of it. I would imagine that then maybe the other direction of that, of trying to define that word too simply, that might be a, a good preaching pitfall. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you you've got two ditches in this case and they're both preaching pitfalls. The one is making the word too complicated. A lot of times I think we as scholars enjoy saying things like, well, this word can't be translated into English <laughs> or there's really no word that quite captures it. And while that might be true, it's not ultimately a helpful place to stop. Um, so the the one ditch is making the word too alien or too different. On the other hand, if you think of the this word like a balloon, that when you've got that whole range of meanings, it's like a great big balloon that's kind of full of air and really just plentiful, you don't want to deflate that balloon either. You don't want to just pick one word to say this is what it means because then you you run into the case where all you're left with is a deflated word that means very little um at least as far as the text is concerned mm-hmm. so it, it this is a preaching pitfall um but i think it actually could be a preaching angle um justice is really a it's both an overused word, in my opinion, in our context, and it's a uh, becoming a bit of a political word. So for some people, it's a really rallying cry. For others, it's really a turnoff or, or something that immediately puts them on the defensive. And yet it's something the Bible talks about a whole lot. So in both of those scenarios, I think inviting the congregation in to a really 
deep understanding of mishpat, of what this biblical word is and is talking about and is trying to tip us into, could be a really fun sermon. And this text could be a really sweet way into that. Um, So one way I would suggest starting with that is, is to turn this into a refrain. Have a phrase that and captures some of that full balloon of the word that you repeat throughout your sermon, both to help people stay engaged and to not uh, end up with a deflated balloon. So if it were to be something like mishpat, judgment, righteousness, justice, I could see that being a really nice transition point between sections of your sermon that would help people grasp that this word means more than we give it and um, also keep them connected as you're moving through your sermon. So that's both the pre- preaching pitfall and an angle, I would say. Okay, well, let's let's move along here. Uh, in the first four verses, uh, you were mentioning that this passage is talking about God's servant. Can you say more about that? Who Who is this servant? Yeah, the easy short answer is we don't know. (laughs) No, uh, that is the easy short answer, but there's, of course, many theories. Um, One theory is that it's a political leader of the time who is helping enact uh, this return from exile that you were talking about last week. Um, Another theory, of course, is that this is a foretelling of the Messiah. And so we as Christians move easily and quickly to Jesus, especially this Um, this sort of connotation of a suffering servant who will not cry out or shout aloud, but bears the suffering um, with some sort of gentleness or dignity and comes to enact mishpat, judgment, righteousness, justice on the earth. Brueggemann actually has an interesting idea that I really like. He said that it's likely actually a singular servant, but that stands for a whole group of people, namely Mm. God's people, Israel. Um, And I I really like that idea. Um, I think what what that allows us to do is kind of find a way out of the very historical, this was an actual political person, and the more messianic, this was foretelling Jesus, by um, giving us a third option. If you want to help your people get there, again, this is another preaching angle, I might ask them to imagine that this is Jesus speaking in the role of God here, which is convenient because Jesus is God. So, you know, (laughs) that works. Um, And then if as you're reading it, perhaps replace the word servant with servant people. Now, what you don't want to do, this is a pitfall, is you don't want to replace the idea of Israel with Christian church. That's a little thing called supersessionism. It's a bad idea. It's a Christian way of saying that Christians have replaced Jews. And Paul in Romans was adamantly against that. So I wouldn't suggest going that way. But if you'd use the idea of servant people instead, it's an expansive enough term to apply to both groups. And I think it's a good description of both as well, even if we live out that servitude in different ways. Uh, We talked already about how this servant is actually described, not crying, not shouting, not being noisy, not breaking a bruised reed, not snuffing out a dim wick. Not exactly sure what all of those things have in common together, Hmm. but more important, I think, is to notice the orientation of the person. And this is from Brueggemann again. When you are in a place of exile, and I'm going, I know I'm going to like the metaphorical emotional here, but just stay with me for a minute. When you're in a place of exile, 
when you're in a place of wilderness, when you're in a place of deep disturbance, what are you most oriented towards, yourself or others? Yeah, naturally, you'd be sort of looking inward towards your own needs and feelings. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's a very natural thing to do. It's not a good place to be in for long term, though. Yeah. And so what we... What we see here is a sort of turning outwards. Um, And this is, as we've talked about, this comes at a time of deep national turmoil. And God comes in, instead of saying, essentially, I'm going to fix your turmoil, God says, yo, look up, look out, there's work to do. So it's this this orienting of the body and the eyes and the 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 physical stance outward from us. And I think that's a really fun sermon angle, too. Yeah. When the servant gets doing those things, when the servant people start doing those things, what what does that look like? Well, first of all, God sets the stage in verse five. Um, God wants everyone to be very clear who this is coming from. And of course, the answer to that is God. So God starts with mm-hmm. a self-description of having created the heavens and stretched them out, who rolled out the earth. And that would be a fun image to play with. What, what person comes to your mind when you picture someone rolling out something um i don't know for you tim but for me i picture um i picture a a grandma or a grandpa rolling out a baking mat yeah even rolling out the dough yeah for for a pie crust or something right yeah yeah don't get we we don't need to get too far into the fact that the earth is round we know that folks we just (laughs) go with it um so once god set the stage like that um then god talks about God's action on the servant people. I called you. I took your hand. I guarded you. And now I give you as a covenant people, as a light to the nations. And at that moment, after God has done all of that action, then the servant people get into it as well. And the stuff they get to do sounds awesome. They get to do opening eyes in verse 7. They're rescuing prisoners. They're dragging folks out of the dungeons of their lives. And and that's both metaphorical and literal. Um, I went to the metaphorical exile place a little bit earlier. I'd like to stay in the literal place now. There's a strong argument that this is not only asking us about the dungeons of our lives, but the physical dungeons that society has, that this is an economic text. This isn't just freedom from emotional imprisonment, but it's also freedom from situations where folks are being punished far beyond their crimes due to the wider societal urges of oppression and injustice. And I think preachers, that would be a pitfall to skip too quickly over that. This is a really embodied text, and it's talking about our bodies and also the bodies of other people who are living under oppression. Mm-hmm. Finally, the way this ends um, is with another turn outward, and this time you could say upward towards God. Uh, Brueggemann chimes in with this idea that all of this servant action is only made possible because of the glory, the kavod from last week that you talked about, Tim, and the action of God. And to put this in very simple Christian terms, we love because Jesus first loved us. Yeah, that's great. Well, before we before we sign off here, is there anything else that you want to say about this text? Maybe uh, something in the larger context that uh, you know doesn't necessarily fall within the assigned lectionary verses. Ooh, I'm 
so happy you asked. There's this gorgeous image in verses 13 to 16, and it's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and I'll, I'll only talk very briefly about it, but I could go on and on and on about this text. It pictures God, God self-naming as a warrior and then as a woman in labor. And right away, those sound like two opposite images, and they seem odd to be put right next to each other like that. Hmm. Uh, so I'm going to get a little dorky here, a little Bible nerdy, but stick with me because the gain is just so worth it. Claudia Bergman has a great little chapter called Like a Warrior and Like a Woman Giving Birth. And what she did is she noticed that there's other times in the biblical text when this image of a woman in labor is superimposed on top of warriors in other chapters as well, other places that these two pictures are linked. And that's interesting because there's lots of things that have, uh, there's lots of things that could be highlighted from a woman in labor, uh, the power of it, the messiness of it, the ultimately generative nature of it. Literally, you generate something. But she noticed that in all of the other instances besides this one, what it's highlighting is the danger. Mm. Giving birth was a very dangerous process before modern medicine, and it still is today, especially if you are poor or an under, from an underprivileged community. And so when this image is used, it's highlighting the danger that warriors in. There's nothing generative about this image in other places, except for here. This is one of the only times where God is pictured as a woman in labor. And it's the only time where God is pictured first as a warrior and then as a woman giving birth. Or like one of my students this semester said, a warrior giving birth. And I just love that idea because it's not danger that's being lifted up here. It's the action. It's the generative idea. God is holding back and restraining, but then like a woman giving labor, screams, pants, gasps, and hills are scorched, rivers are fried, marshes wither, and God's people are led back home. God's labor is not an image of danger here. It's an actual image of birth. God births light from darkness, level ground from rough places, and promises in verse 16. It's such a cool, cool interpretation. And I don't know if it's preachable, but I feel like everybody should know it. So there you go. Well, Rachel, thanks for taking us through this passage. And I think uh, you've helped us to get a lot of good material that uh, preachers could weave into a really powerful sermon here. So thanks for your work on that. Glad to have done it. Okay, dear listeners, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. You know the drill. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or uh, take a look at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. We have a link to subscribe there as well, and you can see all of the back uh, episodes and everything there as well. Uh, Let people know about what we're doing. Share us on your social media outlets, and uh, that'll help us get the word out in 2020 about, about the good stuff that's happening over here at First Reading. Well, until next time, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching.